It's Christmas! Well, tonight, thank God it's there instead of you. Oh, Christmas Day, my ass. I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Christmas to you and all. Hello again, this is Adam, the host of Merry Britsmas, the podcast all about Christmas from a British perspective, where I'll continue to ramble on about music, traditions and TV the whole year through. This month we are creeping towards spring ever so slowly, sunshine is sneaking back into our mornings and evenings, it's lighter earlier and lighter later and the temperature is creeping away from freezing and towards something slightly more bearable. That is good news for some outdoor adventuring and wonders, but also it means we're heading towards the next Christmas season of course as well. This month I thought I'd discuss a hodgepodge of things, including another festive episode of the classic BBC sci-fi show Doctor Who, the topsy-turvy traditional celebration involving the Lord of Misrule, and some alternative indie British Christmas songs you may not have heard. First up, let's get time travelling. Last year, I watched and reviewed the first Christmas special of the Doctor Who revival with David Tennant's first appearance in 2005, battling the Sycorax. Coincidentally, I recently had a lightbulb moment when I realised the name of this alien race was connected to Shakespeare, with the witch mother of Caliban in The Tempest being called the Sycorax. Just an English teacher moment of excitement and awareness there. Well, this whole Christmassy Doctor Who thing was so successful, they decided to do it again. 2006 had Tennant returning as the Doctor, and the end of series 2, in the revival terms, gave a cliffhanger teaser at the end of the last episode, Doomsday, with a woman in a wedding dress appearing in the TARDIS to the bafflement of the Doctor. We discover this is Donna Noble, a rather outspoken bride-to-be played by Catherine Tate, somehow teleported directly into the TARDIS while standing at the altar. What? What? Who are you? Where am I? What? What the hell is this place? What? And she's as confused as he is, as she's meant to be getting married. That is physically impossible. How do you tell me where I am? I demand you tell me right now, where am I? Inside the TARDIS. What? The TARDIS. What? The TARDIS. The what? It's called the TARDIS. That's not even a proper word. You're just saying things. How did you get in here? Well, obviously, when you kidnapped me. Who was it? Who's paying you? Is it Neris? Oh my God, she's finally got me back. This has got Neris written all over it. Who the hell is Neris? Your best friend. Hold on, wait a minute. What are you dressed like that for? I'm going to him in bowling. What do you think, Dumbo? I was halfway up the aisle. She is absolutely baffled by where she's appeared and is rather talkative about the whole thing to an equally confused and irritated doctor. And soon the bride gets angry. I don't know you. 
I haven't done anything. I'm having the police on you. Me and my husband, as soon as he is my husband, we're gonna sue the living backside off ya. She also finds an item of clothing left behind by the recently departed character Rose Tyler at the end of the previous series, now living in a parallel universe. You probably need to watch more to really get it. It's timey-wimey, brilliant nonsense. I knew it. Acting all innocent. I'm not the first, am I? How many women have you abducted? That's my friend. Where is she then? Popped out for a spacewalk? She's gone. Gone where? I lost her. We can hurry up and lose me! Anyway, the Doctor takes Donna back to Earth, but his TARDIS seems to be malfunctioning, which happens a lot it seems in this series, and they arrive in the wrong place in London. Donna is even more angry, and the Doctor is getting more exasperated. Ten past three. I'm gonna miss it. Are you phone them? Tell them where you are. How do I do that? You got a mobile? I'm in my wedding dress. It doesn't have pockets. Who has pockets? Have you ever seen a bride with pockets? When I went to my fitting at Shares Allison, the one thing I forgot to say was give me pockets! This man you're marrying, what's his name? Lance. Good luck, Lance. Oi! No stupid Martian is gonna stop me from getting married to hell with you! Talk about the Christmas spirit. Is it Christmas? Well, duh, maybe not on Mars, but here it's Christmas Eve. Donna finds a taxi to try and get to her wedding, but it's being driven by, of course, a robot Santa alien creature, as previously seen in the last Christmas episode we discussed. These creatures are scavenger robots, and they're trying to kidnap Donna for some reason. Turn around! Turn this cab around right now! Or you dead will walk! Oh my god! The Doctor rescues her using a flying TARDIS down the motorway, and it's exactly as silly as it sounds, and that's saying something for a show about a regenerating alien with a blue phone box time machine. The whole scene's kind of childish, and probably my least favourite bit of the episode. It looks a bit absurd, and there's some weird action James Bond style music blaring out. Of course he saves her, but she misses her wedding. So the Doctor tries to figure out why she was the target of this alien kidnap scheme whilst kind of insulting her. What's your job? I'm a secretary. It's weird, I mean, you're not special, you're not powerful, you're not connected, you're not clever, you're not important. This friend of yours, just before she left, did she punch you in the face? Stop bleeping me! She tells the doctor about her husband-to-be, Lance, who she met at a temp job. What kind of secretary? I'm H.C. Clements. That's where I met Lance. I was temping. I mean, it was all a bit posh, really. I'd spent the last two years at a double glazing firm. Well, I thought, I'm never going to fit in here. And then he made me a cup of coffee. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Nobody gets the secretaries a coffee. And Lance, he's the head of HR. He doesn't need to bother with me. But he was nice. He was funny. She's not that bad. <laughs> and it turns out he thought everyone else was really snotty, too. That's how it started, meaning. One cup of coffee. Donna eventually finds her way to the reception and crashes it to find everyone partying without her. You had the reception without me. Donna, 
What happened to you? You had the reception without me. Hello, I'm the doctor. They had the reception without me. Yes, I gathered. Well, it was all paid for. Why not? Thank you, Neris. The doctor then watches a video of her disappearance on the wedding tape, and it seems to be something called Huon Energy, and he realises that the robot Santas have found them. Huon Energy doesn't exist anymore, not for billions of years. So old. Can't be hidden by a biodamper! They attack and chaos reigns before the Doctor of course saves the day. Before the Doctor of course saves the day with the sonic screwdriver and the DJ setup. Oi! Santa! Word of advice! If you're attacking a man with a sonic screwdriver, don't let me in the sound system. Now I did love the action Christmas music mashup in the background of this scene. The Doctor realises something is controlling the robots and we see a spider-like alien in a spaceship plotting with evil whispers in full-on Doctor Who melodrama. Clever, clever, clever boy. Eat you up all, Little travelling man. He shall come to me and the beautiful bride. Such secrets to unlock. I shall descend this night. I shall descend upon this earth and shine! The Doctor, Donna and Lance head to the office that they work at as the Doctor has found out the company was connected to Torchwood, the alien investigation organisation. And the Doctor explains why Donna is important and why she was pulled to the TARDIS. Somehow you've been dosed with Huon Energy. And that's a problem, because Huon energy hasn't existed since the dark times. The only place you find a Huon particle now is a remnant in the heart of the TARDIS. See? That's what happened. Say, that's the TARDIS. And that's you. The particles inside you activated. The two sets of particles magnetised and whap! You were pulled inside the TARDIS. I'm a pencil inside a mug. Yes, you are. 4-H sums you up. Lance, what was H.C. Clements working on? Anything top secret? Special operations? Do not enter? I don't know. I'm in charge of personnel. I wasn't project manager. Why am I even explaining myself? What the hell are we talking about? They then find some secret tunnels that lead to the River Thames flood barrier, and Donna knocks the nail on the head. Thames flood barrier? Right on top of us. Torchwood snuck in and built this place underneath. What, there's like a secret base hidden underneath a major London landmark? Oh, I know. Unheard of. 
He finds out a lab was creating human particles, but lets Donna know they are deadly and he needs to save her. Right, just tell me. These particles, are they dangerous? Am I safe? Yes. Doctor. If you're not got rid of human particles, why did they do that? Because they were deadly. Oh my God. I'll sort it out, don't I? Whatever's been done to you, I'll reverse it. I am not about to lose someone else. Then the spider-like alien makes her presence known and reveals she is in a star-like spaceship. Appropriate for Christmas time, right? Only a madman talks to thin air. And trust me, you don't want to make me mad. Where are you? High in the sky. Floating so high on Christmas night. I didn't come all this way to talk on the intercom. We then find out the alien is the Empress of the Ragnos. And to be honest, she does look pretty cool and is played by Sarah Parrish, an accomplished dramatic and comedic actress, who has appeared in shows such as Peak Practice, Cutting It and Broadchurch. Then we get another comedic festive link, as we find out she's been killing the heads of the company for... My Christmas dinner! <laughs> you shouldn't even exist! Lance sneaks behind the Empress with an axe before the twist reveal. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> Lance is funny. <laughs> what? Sorry. Sorry for what? Lance, don't be so stupid! Get her! God, she's thick. Months I've had to put up with her. Months. A woman who can't even point to Germany on a map. I don't understand. How did you meet him? The office. He made you coffee. What? Every day, I made you coffee. <laughs> you had to be dosed with liquid particles over six months. It was poisoning me. It was all there in the job title. The head of human resources. Then the doctor reveals the Rachnos were wiped out but the Empress has somehow survived and seeks to bring back her race with Huon particles for them to feed on a living body. The alien children are buried as the core of the planet back at the dawn of the Earth, which the Doctor watches via a quick time travel excursion. You know, just Doctor things like watching the birth of the Earth. We've gone back 4.6 billion years. There's no solar system, not yet. Only dust and rocks and gas. That's the sun. Over there, brand new. Just beginning to burn. Where's the Earth? All around us. In the dust. The Doctor arrives and offers the Empress a chance of survival. The Doctor man amuses me. <laughs> Empress of the Rachnos, I give you one last chance. I can find you a planet. I can find you and your children a place in the universe to coexist. Take that offer and end this now. But then makes the threat when she refuses. These men are so funny. What's your answer? Oh, I'm afraid I have to decline. <laughs> then what happens next is your own doing. I'll show you what happens next. Act on! 
We often see Tennant as a more ruthless doctor compared to some of the others, and it's interesting to see the side of him. And he then floods the pit to her children, using remote-controlled explosive baubles from the Santa robots. Another fun Christmas link? Well, maybe not so fun. Human forces destroy the Empress's ship, and Doctor and Donna escape, and even offers her a place as his companion in the TARDIS, which doesn't go as expected even though he makes it snow. I like her more realistic reaction to him in the final scene compared to the fawning of other companions. Come with me. No. Okay. I can't. No, that's fine. No, but really, everything we did today, do you live your life like that? Not all the time. I think you do. And I couldn't. You've seen it out there. It's beautiful. And it's terrible. That place was flooding and burning and they were dying and you stood there like... I don't know. A stranger. And then you made it snow. I mean, you scared me to death. However, Doctor Who fans know Donna returns as his companion in Series 4. And she was and is a divisive figure. I quite liked her and enjoyed her role in this for the most part. It's not a super Christmassy Christmas special, but it dips into festive things here and there with killer Santa robots and jokes. I think that's one of my main criticisms of this. I think that's one of my main criticisms of this episode, as others in the show often have a more festive slant or backdrop. Still, it's a fun romp, as always, and Tennant is always a joy to watch on screen as the Doctor, bringing action, sharpness, humour, energy and a dash of cruelty in an engaging way. And there are still plenty of Doctor Who Christmas episodes to come in future, so stay tuned. I'm sure many of you have heard the term Lord of Misrule. Many of you may know it's something to do with a peasant becoming a king or something like that. Maybe some of you know it's connected to Christmas and a kind of game, and has been adapted into different things over the years. However, I thought I'd go a bit more into depth and explore the history of the celebrations related to Britain. It all actually goes back to a time when the winter celebrations were more suited for adults instead of kids. Back in the Middle Ages, originally in France, there was a tradition called the Feast of Fools, where individuals in a lower social position were given temporary power and dignity, a kind of drama. It was more like a performed piece than a real celebration and there seems to be evidence for an almost scripted routine tradition surrounding the event. A boy bishop was usually selected to gently mock the religious leader's role in proceedings. There was an inversion of established roles outside of religious systems as well. A bean king took a leading role in Christmas celebrations during the reigns of Edward II and Edward III in the 1300s. The first Tudor king, Henry VII, revived the tradition in the late 1400s with a Lord of Misrule presiding over festivities during the 12 days. Typically a servant or a minor court official, the Lord of Misrule's team included a jester and a gibbet, a gallows-like construct, for the mock execution of those who offended him to entertain. As the tradition and celebrations spread through Europe and throughout the UK, King Henry VIII didn't see the funny side and actually abolished the practice for a short while in 1541, considering it an affront to the church. However, as with many things, it couldn't be squashed fully and returned under the reign of Edward VI and Mary I. It developed and grew more fun, moving away from the religious focus. 
Part of the process in England during the Tudor era involved this Lord of Misrule, or in French, the Prince des Sots. This was an individual selected to be in control of the whole thing, from a lower social class or grouping. It was done in establishments such as Oxford and Cambridge University, Lincoln's Inn, a society of barristers, and in the Royal Court. John Stowe, in his Survey of London published in 1603, gives a detailed description. In the feast of Christmas there was in the king's house, wheresoever he was lodged, a lord of misrule, or master of merry disports. And the like had ye in the house of every noble man, of honour or good worship, were he spiritual or temporal. Amongst the which, the mayor of London, and either of the sheriffs had their several lords of misrule, ever contending without quarrel or offence, who should make the rarest pastimes to delight the beholders. These lords, beginning their rule on All Hallow Eve, Halloween, continued the same till the morrow after the Feast of the Purification, commonly called Candlemas Day. In all which spaces there were fine and subtle disguisings, masks and mummeries, with playing at cards for counters, nails and points in every house, more for pastimes than for gain. Some wealthy households would give the position to servants. This controlled debauchery and chaos allowed the underclasses and servants to feel connected to their wealthy bosses, despite having no real control or power. It would help keep balance and positive spirits over the bleak winter season. Some celebrations stretched through from Halloween to Christmastide, early in the new year, with the chosen Lord of Misrule having some power, games, and mainly fun throughout this whole time. Aside from having some servants to manipulate, the Lord of Misrule would invite travelling actors to perform mummers plays, more on which I may discuss in a future episode. They'd also host masquerade parties, hold feasts, and arrange the procession of the Yule Log. Games that were often illegal the rest of the year were allowed during the Christmas season, and the Lord of Misrule was in charge of organising them. Whilst the tradition dictated a lowly person become a Lord of Misrule, King Edward VI's Lord of Misrule was a notable man, a courtier and a writer called George Ferrers. He was in charge of the celebrations to provide entertainment for the king and people. Record shows he really went all out, with a parade, jousting, a mock midsummer event, musicians, morris dancers, banquets and theatre, including a performance of the triumph of Cupid, Venus and Mars. He did so well he was awarded with an estate in Hertfordshire from the royal court, so he must have done a pretty good job. An interesting regional aside is that Scotland had its own version of the Lord of Misrule, called the Abbot of Unreason. His role was generally the same as the English counterpart. Unfortunately, the rise of the Puritan party in the 1700s brought about the end of these kind of celebrations, with the custom outlawed as deceptive and never fully revived afterwards. Maybe it's time to bring back a Lord of Misrule to shake things up a bit. Perhaps some places need a Lord of Misrule all year round to really rattle the establishments. Finally, instead of exploring a very well-known Christmas song, I thought I'd take this spring episode to explore some unknown British Christmas tracks that deserve some attention. I have a pretty wide taste in music in terms of genre and styles, but I'm definitely a big fan of alternative and indie music. I was an indie kid as a teenager, wearing skinny jeans, going to gigs every night, buying the Enemy magazine to find out which bands were new, cool or worth checking out. So I've scoured my music catalogue for some unknown Christmas British indie songs that you may not be aware of. 
I'll tell you a little about the bands involved too for some background, and perhaps for you to check them out if you like their festive attempts. First up is Sunderland post-punk band Futureheads, formed in 2000 and probably most well known for their brilliant cover of Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. Follow in the sounds of artists like Gang of Four and XTC, with post-punk jagged sounds and an art rock style. They released five albums before disbanding, then reforming a couple of years ago for a new record. However, the Christmas track came in 2010 and was called Christmas Was Better in the 80s, a sentiment many may agree with, including most likely a certain Mr. Davila, who hosts the Totally Rad Christmas podcast. In the song, future heads begin in a nostalgic reverie for childhood festivities before kicking things up a notch with some guitars. On Christmas Eve in the 80s My mother would say to me Upstairs and go to sleep Wake up in a dream Christmas was better in the 80s Better in the 1980s Another band who borrowed from rock sounds of earlier decades are Pins, an indie group from Manchester who take inspiration from heavier 90s alternative rock and shoegaze such as My Bloody Valentine and Hole. The band have released three albums, worked with the likes of Iggy Pop and toured with bands like Slater Kinney and The Breeders. They released a surprisingly soft Christmas song called Come On Home It's Christmas, using a dainty beat to bounce along in a nursery rhyme days, as the lyrics tell the tale of missing a loved one at Christmas a classic Christmas song trope. Next up are The Spook School, a Scottish four-piece who explore gender, sexuality and queer ideas in their music, whilst playing great indie pop with a fuzzy 80s guitar sound. They released three albums through Fortuna Pop and Alcapop records, including the super fun and definitely worth checking out Try To Be Hopeful. Their third album was long-listed for the Scottish Album of the Year, 
but the group split soon after. Their Christmas song appeared in 2017, called Someone to Spend Christmas With, a jaunty bass-propelled number, as the lyrics express a desire to move on and upwards. Finally, a band who many have discovered in recent years after the tragic death of lead singer Scott Hutchison in 2018. Frightened Rabbit are another Scottish group whose five albums have been the recipient of critical acclaim and love from fans of indie folk with beautiful lyrical stories that often feel very cinematic in their telling. They played on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, toured with the likes of Death Cab for Cutie and have become cult favourites for many. Their gorgeous yet downbeat Christmas song is called It's Christmas So We'll Stop, released as a single in 2008. I can't say much more except to just listen and check out more of their music if you enjoyed this. It's Christmas, so we'll stop. It's on with the lights to warm the dark. It can cloak elsewhere as the rot stops for today. Let the rot stop just for one day. Only good red eyes, red suits and pieces of rain. And the cold will hide its face Now the cold's turned away We can be best friends with the people we hate Cause we've all got blood And it's warmer than you think Yeah, it is warm and it's thick We all breathe out clouds Well, thanks for downloading and listening to a Christmas podcast in March. I love I have a bunch of listeners still, and you guys are Christmas heroes. As I said in my last episode, I'd love to hear from you lot. If you have a favourite British Christmas episode, and you'd like to tell me what it is and why, I'd love to have your written words or voice recording if you'd like to do one. Or you can recommend or suggest something that you'd like me to talk about on the podcast. You can send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. I'm simply known as Merry Britsmas. Give me a follow if you don't yet. Happy blooming Christmas to you and all.